0: In, uh, in John's Gospel, now, that was in verses one through fifteen, it was John's fourth messianic sign that he has been covering in this in this gospel. Let me get my clock turned on here, so I don't keep it too long. There you go. And this sign is like all the other signs uh, in the Gospel of John one sort of aspect of the signs in John's gospel is that they are extraordinarily miraculous. So anything, any miracle is miraculous, right? These are usually described as extraordinarily so. He feeds 5,000 men with just five loaves and two fish, which is not including women and children, so we're talking 20 plus thousand people, extraordinary numbers. Before this, he heals a man that was lame 38 years. Before that, he heals an official's son instantaneously from a great distance. And before that, he changes six large stone water pots uh, into the mist of wine. So all of these are shown to be extraordinarily miraculous. But the signs uh, that Jesus does are meant to testify something more than just that he has a lot of power. Um, They're more than just extraordinary works. The signs are meant to testify that Jesus is indeed Messiah. And they are meant to give a visible portrait of the eternal life that he has come to provide. They're come to illustrate who he is and what he has come to accomplish. We said that the signs are sort of foretastes of the new creation. They are are the new creation realities bursting into this present age. They are giving us glimpses of what Jesus is going to one day accomplish universally as he recreates the heavens and the earth. And they declare that the new creation age has decisively begun in the coming of Christ. It's not come in all of its fullness yet. That will happen when he returns. But in his first coming, the primary way the new creation has begun, the primary way the new creation invades this present age is spiritually, as it transforms lives, as it brings people from death to life through the new birth, giving them eternal life, removing the condemnation that's looming over their heads, reconciling them to God, making them into fruitful branches as a new covenant people for God. That is what is the primary way Christ ushers in the new creation into this present age. That's what John has been declaring, what Jesus has been illustrating. But the repeated pattern in this gospel is that the Jews who long for the kingdom and the fullness of God's promises failed to respond rightly to Jesus and his signs. They failed to be led beyond these signs to recognizing two things. The unique person of Jesus, who he is, as very God of very God in the flesh, the Son of God and Messiah. And to recognize their desperate need for the spiritual realities that Christ has come to provide. For them, they're Jews. They have have it taken care of. They got their shadows of the temple and the sacrifices. We're content with this. Just give us the kingdom now. And they're ignorant of the deadness in their hearts like Nicodemus. They need to be born again. That's what Jesus came come to provide. They want the blessings of the kingdom without the spiritual realities of the kingdom. They love the kingdom but not the king. They're willing to assert, affirm the supernatural in Jesus For they fell short of receiving him as their only hope and access to the Father. But true disciples, what we're going to see in this passage, John 6, is really distinguishing true versus false disciples. True disciples worship Jesus' person, they submit to his words, and they rely on his finished work. That's exactly what takes place in John 6. So here they are there, we're in John 6. Notice verses 1 to 15 is about this story, feeding of the 5,000. And verse 15, he feeds them and immediately he retreats into the mountains. Why does he do that? It says the people are about to come and make him king by force. They conclude that he is indeed the prophet, the one promised in Deuteronomy 18, who is like Moses... He makes this miracle bread, feeds a multitude in the wilderness, around Passover, like manna. They conclude, this is the prophet, the one like Moses, who's going to come. And they come, they're ready to force him to be king. It's a time around Passover, Jewish national zeal is running high, and Jesus retreats. They see him as a new Moses who will deliver them, not from Egypt, but from Roman oppression. they say, he's the one, let's get him make him our king. And Jesus retreats. The crowd missed it. Jesus had not come to be that kind of Messiah. He is the prophet. He is the one like Moses, but his kingdom is not of this world. And what we're going to see in chapter 6, just like all the signs in John's gospel, we get a sign and then we get a teaching, a discourse that's going to explain the sign. And that is the rest of chapter 6. It's going to unpack What were they supposed to conclude from the sign of the feeding of the 5,000? It's the bread of life discourse that Jesus gives. But before we get there, we're going to get this short little story. That's where we're going to be this morning, verses 16 through 21, about Jesus walking on the water. And it seems a bit out of place. Why um, is John sticking this story here for us? There's a couple reasons. One is it's going to give us an explanation for how Jesus appears in Capernaum in verse 22. The disciples leave in the boats. The crowd knows that. They got the ways blockaded. They're ready to catch Jesus whenever they can. And then verse 22, he's in Capernaum. How did that happen? Well, this story is to explain how he got over there. They are on the other side of the Sea of Galilee at this point. The story is also here to give us a glimpse of Jesus, which the crowd does not get. It is here to reveal something glorious about Jesus, and to make it clear to us readers how much greater is Jesus than what the crowds thought he was. So in this story, Jesus comes to his disciples, walking on the sea, in order to reveal his person more clearly to his faithful disciples. He's not doing this to the crowd. Notice. This is not a sign in the technical sense in John. Some people think this is another sign. It's not. Signs are always called signs in the Gospel of John. And signs are always public works in front of unbelievers. Neither of those are are happening here. This is not a sign necessarily, but it is a private manifestation of himself for the benefit of his disciples. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that the disciples are absolutely blown away when they see Jesus doing this. And Mark tells us that it's because they didn't understand the miracle of the loaves. They, they didn't conclude what they were supposed to. They should have concluded that he is creator God, and of course he can do this. But they're blown away. They still don't get it. And so here is Jesus coming to them again and again. They have true faith, but it's small, it's immature, and he's coming for them that they would know him and believe him more fully. But he doesn't reveal himself like this to the crowd. Well, why not? Why not, Jesus? Because they failed to respond to him rightly to begin with, and if he continued to reveal himself, he would be heightening their guilt for failing to respond to revelation correctly. And he would be encouraging their false faith. He gives them a sign they reject, and he gives them more of himself. He'd be encouraging their their false faith. He doesn't do that. But the disciples, while their faith is small and immature, have true faith in Christ. They have seen his glory. They believe his words, and they are growing the more of him they learn. By the end of chapter 6, most of this multitude, 20,000 plus people, are going to abandon Christ. And only 12 disciples are going to be left. And this is here to sort of give us some of the essential ingredients of what is needed to be a true disciple. Mm-hmm. Jesus is after their faith, and he's going to do it by putting them to test here in this boat. Mm-hmm. If you're a disciple, like these disciples, Jesus is after your growth and maturity. You have true faith, you received him. <coughs> Your faith has a long way to go, so does mine. And he often puts us in a boat in the middle of a raging sea that we would behold his glory more clearly. And that is what he does with the disciples this morning. So I've entitled this passage A Theophany at Sea. A Theophany is a, a display of God, a revealing of God. A Theophany at Sea, Jesus unveils his identity to his disciples. And it begins by telling us this hard journey of the disciples in verses 16 through 18. Look at verse 16, the evening departure. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. So Jesus has retreated up into the hill country, and the disciples now come down to the sea of Galilee, getting ready to head back over to Capernaum. Matthew and Mark tells us that Jesus ordered his disciples to depart without him. And so they reach the shoreline and they begin departure. And John tells us that it was already evening. That means it's not yet dark, but darkness is setting in quickly. It's late in the afternoon. And then in verses 17 to 18... John sort of comes off the main action, just gives us all this background information. The way it's written in Greek, it's very clear. All this is backgrounding; it's building the intensity for what is about to happen in verse 19. So let's just feel. John wants you to feel the intensity of what is going on here in verses 17 through 18. And this is the dire setting of the disciples. First thing he gives us in verse 17 is the prolonged Journey. It literally says, and after embarking into the boat, they were coming across the sea unto Capernaum. The Greek uses the imperfect tense. It, it highlights the, the backgrounding of this information, but also the fact that it's ongoing. They were still in the process of trying to cross this sea. As the story unfolds, the disciples are still in this boat trying to get across the Sea of Galilee. Then gives us the ominous timing, verse 17. It had already become dark. They're departing in the evening, and now it become dark. Again, the in Greek the emphasis is on the ongoing condition of darkness. It's meant to just make that pop out. It had become dark, and it was still dark. It was very dark. Not a good thing that you want on the sea at this time and what's going to be happening. If that were not bad enough, verse 17 gives us also the absence of Jesus. It says Jesus had not yet come to them. The disciples are alone. Jesus isn't there. Perhaps they waited on the shore, hoping Jesus would arrive, and it's getting dark and we got to go. We can't wait for him. Mark seems to indicate that Jesus directed them to go to nearby Bethsaida to rendezvous with him. Perhaps they did, and he still didn't show up. So out to sea, they go alone without Jesus. Just like the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus knows what he's doing. He's setting it up um, so that he can test them and reveal something glorious about himself to them. Finally, verse 18 tells us about the threatening sea. It says the sea was being aroused by a great wind blowing. This is another one of those imperfect verbs in Greek, highlighting the ongoing nature of this. It's literally the sea was being made turbulent, being stirred up. Matthew and Mark tells us that it was a strong headwind against them, blowing fiercely towards their little fishing boat, and they had to row against it. The wind was certainly causing the sea to become very turbulent. So when you think about what's going on here, don't think about storm clouds and lightning and thunder. This is a heavy wind that was fairly common on the Sea of Galilee, but it's certainly not something you wanted to get stuck in in the middle of night um, in in a little fishing boat. Let me give you some pictures here. Uh, some of my nerdiness. I love Google Earth. Maybe <laughs> M- 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 <laughs> will sometimes come in. I'm on my phone. And, what are you doing? Looking at a random, <laughs> random place on Google Earth. So bear with me. Um, so this the Sea of Galilee. It is about 600 feet below sea level. Um, it was prime conditions for turbulent winds and all kinds of weather phenomena. Pernum's here. He probably did the feet of the five thousands so on this side near the Golan Heights. All of these would be the Golan Heights. Um, zoom in a bit bit here. Um, This would be sort of the hillside country over on that side, the Golan Heights. You can see it's not mountains like we think of it, hill country. Um, And he would have retreated up into them and the disciples would have come down to one of these harbors into the boats and to uh, take off. Go back. I want to point out one significant feature here. Why is there such strong wind? Uh, If you go to Israel, has anyone been to Israel in this room? No, Carrie, Matt? Okay, a few of you guys. There's a little mountain here called Mount Arbell, um, And it is a significant feature, that actually was one of the reasons for this, this wind. Zoom in here, uh, Mount Arbell. it was a cliff um, stuck up, beautiful uh, piece of, I um, do uh, whatever you call it, photography or mountain. So but you can see what would happen here is wind would come gusting down this. It was almost like, a, it was called the Arbell Pass, and it almost became a wind tunnel. Most people believe Jesus was on Mount Arbel when he gave the Great Commission. Like tradition tells us, but it is uh, it's beautiful. It's what it looked like right there. Um, it's what it looks like on top of Arbel, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, so I'm going to show you here. Back here is the Mediterranean Sea, and what would happen, storms or weather conditions on the Mediterranean would force massive winds to come down this plain, totally open, and down this channel, this pass between Arbel. And it would just force these massive winds onto the Sea of Galilee. And it would cause the sea to be made turbulent, stirred up uh, big time, uh, big waves and and rough conditions. Um, Our passage tells us um, that they went about 25 to 30 stadia. Okay, So the total distance from there is about 4 to 5 miles, give or take, where um, your destination is. 25 to 30 stadia is about 2.8 to 3.8 miles. So the point is that they still have a good distance to go. They still have about another half to another one mile, still towards the middle of the sea. And Mark tells us that it is right now the fourth watch of the night. That means 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So they departed evening, and it's already 3 a.m. at the earliest uh, you're talking they've been at sea doing this for six hours. Massive gusts of wind turbulent and a fishing boat rolling against it So all of that is meant to set the scene for us now and prepare us for what is going to take place It's scary even for experienced fishermen, but it's this way that Jesus will reveal himself to his disciples So, Let's go on to the next point the theophonic appearance of Jesus to the disciples in verses 19 through 21 And this is where the main action picks up. All of that was setting the scene. After rowing a brutal 25 to 30 stadia, the disciples now see something. It says they see Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat. On a previous occasion, Jesus was with them in the boat, and he commanded the wind and the waves to cease. You might remember that, but he's not there with them. Perhaps they were wishing he was there at this time. But all of a sudden, they see something on the raging sea. It's coming near their boat, and they are terrified. Matthew and Mark tell us they think it is a ghost. John doesn't give us that piece of information. The point is they are fearful of the sea, and they're fearful of whatever this is coming towards them. They do not recognize Jesus. Now, why? It's not only because it's dark. They see something. They don't recognize him because they're not expecting him to come like this is very similar to Mary when Jesus appears to her, Mary Magdalene, after he is raised from the dead at the end of John. Remember? She supposes he's what? The gardener. It's not because Jesus looks entirely different. It's because it just blew her mind. She was not expecting Christ to be resurrected. It's the same idea here. They weren't expecting him. They hadn't gotten it yet from the loaves and the fishes. But here he comes, faithful to his disciples, reveal himself to them. But the focus of the rest of the passage is not on their fear, it's on the glory of Christ which relieves their fears. And that is what we want to focus on, the glories of Jesus Christ. What is he revealing about himself to them? Look at verses 19-20, it tells us the appearance of Jesus on the sea exclaims his true identity. He is revealing something very glorious about his person through this event. If the crowd thought that Jesus was the new Moses, Jesus is here declaring his superiority to Moses. Yes, he is like Moses, but he is even more like Yahweh who revealed himself to Moses. That is what Jesus is doing in this story. Verse 19 tells us that his act of walking on the sea reveals his identity as Yahweh God. Look at verse 19. When they had rowed about 3 or 4 miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat. Mark 6:48 tells us that Jesus intended to pass by them And the idea is not that he's trying to slip by unnoticed. He is doing something very similar to what Yahweh did to Moses on Sinai. Do you remember Exodus 34? What happens there? It says, And the Lord passed by Moses. Moses asked, Show me your glory. And the Lord passes by and he declares his name. The Lord, the Lord, God merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that very same word Mark uses here, Jesus was intending to pass by them, put his glory on display before them. His purpose is display the glory of God as he revealed it to Moses. But why? Why does walking on water reveal his identity as Yahweh? And what implications does that happen for what Jesus came to accomplish? Two things. He possesses authority and dominion over the raging sea as Yahweh God, and he possesses ability to bring about all of God's covenant promises. Both of those are being highlighted here, and we will see just how. Yahweh alone has authority over the raging sea, and he also has authority and ability to bring... All of his covenant promises to pass for his people. Jesus is to be identified with Yahweh God himself. Look with me back to the book of Job. We're going to be in a few Old Testament passages. Look at Job chapter 9. Disciples would have been very familiar with all of these passages. They were good Jews. Job is talking about the character of, of God. Creator God, different, distinct from any. That are here. Infinite sovereign power. And look down in verse 8. Job 9:8. Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples the waves of the sea. Walks on the waves of the sea see. Flip over to Psalm 66. I'm sorry, 65. I think I have that wrong. Psalm 65. This is a psalm celebrating the goodness of God's creation, but especially looking forward to the time where he will restore his creation for his covenant people. Verse five: By awesome deeds you've answered us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. Look down in verse seven, praising the character of God, His sovereignty, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. And the rest of the Psalm, verses nine to thirteen, goes to talk about this new creation that God is going to abundantly provide beauty and goodness restoring it all. And it's because of his character has dominion over all things, even the seas. The raging, chaotic seas. Look at Psalm 77. Verse 15. Very similar context again, recalling the exodus and what God would do um, Psalm 77, verse 15. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Talk about the Exodus. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. It's the Red Sea, right? Indeed, the deep trembled. Look down in verse 19. Your way was through the sea and your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God's works are mighty. He has authority over the deep as creator. The waters fled at the exodus at his presence. So it was ultimately Yahweh, not Moses leading the people out of Egypt, right? And given the connection of Our passage, John 6, to the Exodus, right? The expectation for a new Moses. So see these connections going on here. Jesus is instead declaring this to the disciple, and I think this is the main point. He is saying, no, I am not merely a new Moses. I am Yahweh God. The same one who went before Israel in the Exodus with total authority over the waters, the one who has dominion over all creation, even the raging chaotic seas, are in total submission to me. I'm not just a new Moses, I am the same God who went before Israel in the Exodus. It's me. And because this is Jesus' identity, therefore, he will secure and accomplish all of God's covenant promises for his people in a way more glorious and more sure than anything accomplished at the Exodus. He's going to accomplish a deliverance that only God could accomplish. God in flesh. Peter Gentry and Stephen Welland put it like this, in relation to nature, as Jesus rebukes the stormy sea and it obeys him, as he walks on the sea and the waters support him, these acts of authority and power are viewed not as isolated acts, but as evidence that God's kingdom rule is now here. When placed in the Bible storyline and covenantal progression, these dramatic acts of redemption reveal that Yahweh alone triumphs over the stormy sea, treads upon its waters, yet now these acts are identified with Jesus. So Jesus' acts of walking on the stormy sea is declaring two things. Number one, he is not simply... Another Moses-like leader through whom God delivered them. No, he is God, the same God of the Exodus, sovereign creator. And only those who receive him as this receive him rightly. The, cloud, the, the crowds failed and Jesus is coming to his disciples say, saying, what is the difference in a true and false disciple? You must receive me as this. Number two. He is also presenting himself in this way to declare the redemption he's about to accomplish will supersede anything accomplished in the first exodus. The exodus inaugurated the old covenant but could not provide eternal life. Jesus has come to inaugurate the new covenant through his own person and work and provide eternal life for everyone who believes. The work he's about to accomplish will supersede the work accomplished through Moses to the same degree that God's very being supersedes Moses. And to desire what only the crowd desires, just a physical deliverer, physical kingdom, that and that alone, belittles Jesus. It reveals their blindness to their desperate need, and it reveals their blindness to the magnificence of the glory of they just want another Moses, like the first one. And so he comes to his disciples. He reveals himself to them. And the implication for us is that to receive Jesus for anything else, other than the magnitude of redemption for which he came, is to belittle his very being. As God, he has come to do what only God could do. So, Jesus reveals this through his act of walking on the sea, and then he reveals it through his words of self identification. Look back at John 6. Verse 19, they were afraid. In verse 20, he said to them, I am. Do not be afraid. In Greek, it is simply I am. Ego, I mean. There's a couple levels going on here. The first is what the disciples would have heard in this. This phrase, you're probably familiar, this is the word, Ego me." I am, often referring to Yahweh's covenant name, I am who I am, right? The disciples probably didn't hear that in these words. And it can be simply a a way of self-identification. So remember John 9, the blind man? Everyone's saying, is that the man or is it another one? And he says, Ego me." it's me, right? So it's a way of just simple self-identification. That's probably what Jesus is doing here. Don't be afraid. It's just me. It's Jesus. But there's another level going on because all of us in this room have read the Gospel of John. And we know Jesus is about to make seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he will also make some what are called absolute statements without that predicate at the end, but the bread of life. It's just simply I am. Look at John eight fifty eight. This is probably the climax of um, these statements. Look at John eight fifty eight. Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old yet, and you say Abraham, and Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was echoing me, I am. That is a clear reference to Exodus 3, I am who I am. And so we see both in the context of Jesus walking on the sea and in his words an allusion to the fact that he is none other than Yahweh God of the Old Testament made flesh the unique son of God very God of very God come to accomplish redemption that only God could accomplish so that was the appearance of Jesus on the sea and that's what it meant to declare now we come to verse 21 the glad reception of the disciples models the proper reception to Jesus' person on one level the disciples are relieved of their fears once they realize it's Jesus they're still astonished, but they, it says, they desire to receive him into the boat. They pull him in. But again, for the careful reader of John, these are two key words in the Gospel of John. Desire and receive. What does John 1.12 say? To as many as received him, to those who believed in his name. John wants us to see an illustration here of responding to the identity of Christ as it's been displayed to you with a posture of joyful receiving by faith. Receive him. Receive him as this, as the disciples do. It's true conversion. True faith sees the glory of Christ's person, and it responds by joyfully receiving all that God is for us in Christ. What do believers do? They recognize their desperate condition and receive Jesus for who he is as God and as the one who's come to accomplish what only God could accomplish for them. And that brings us to the final event in the story: the safe and miraculous arrival at their destination illustrates Jesus' promise of preservation. Look at how it ends, verse 21. They were glad to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Matthew and Mark tell us that as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, the wind stops. The wind and waves immediately cease. And John tells us another amazing miracle. No sooner had they received him into the boat than they were immediately at their destination. They're still a half mile to a mile offshore, and immediately they're and had we missed the allusions to the Old Testament earlier, John gives us this little detail to catapult this back to Psalm 107. I invite you to turn with me there, and we'll wrap up by looking at this. Psalm 107. It's a beautiful psalm. Exiles longing for the Lord's deliverance from, ex- um, from the exile, bringing them back into the promised land, based upon his character of steadfast love and faithfulness. that's their only hope. psalms very sim- uh, similar to the, to the other Psalms, celebrating a uh, hope for a new Exodus. So look with me at Psalm 107, verse 23. Listen to the similarities to the story. Some went down to the sea in ships. Same words that are used in John. Doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from the distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. It's exactly what happens here in John. I think John wants us to see a very close connection with this psalm. It's very similar to the points we made earlier. But I think the main point Jesus is making here is that he has come to do just this, to bring all of God's promises to pass as God in the flesh, come to accomplish eternal salvation by dying on a substitute death for the cross, and he immediately here brings his disciples to their safe destination. He's come to preserve his faithful followers. There's a few reasons that I think this is the emphasis. Look over back John 6. Something Jesus is going to say in the discourse that's coming. He will preserve his own. He's already proven that. He's come to his disciples, weak, fearful disciples, to preserve their faith. And he's committed to this, to bring all those who receive him safely to their destination, the kingdom. Fullness of the new creation promises of God. Look at verse 39. Chapter 6. Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Christ is saying, I will preserve my own. I will keep them to the end so they will not perish. He's illustrating for the disciples not only his resolve, but his ability to preserve them to the end. Completely without fail into all of God's promises. But how? You're probably asking, how will he do that? I think the rest of John 6 answers that question. Let me give you three ways here. Number one, by accomplishing redemption in our place through His death, He so sufficiently and completely atoned for your sin, substituted for you with His perfect life, accomplished all of the Father's desires, satisfied His wrath, that there is nothing left for you to do but to receive. Receive Him. He's done it all. He'll bring you to the end because of His work. John six fifty through fifty eight. He does it by calling you to abide through a life that feeds on His cross work. John six forty and fifty four. And He's done it by the Holy Spirit, who brings us to Christ to begin with, and He continues to sustain us to the end. Or you can put it simply: How does He preserve you fully to the end by accomplishing redemption and by sustaining our faith? We saw both of those in our men's group yesterday. If you were there, the objective ground of our assurance and the subjective ground, and he provides both. He provides everything needed for your objective ground of certainty before the Lord, and he will even sustain your faith that is needed to persevere to the end. And he's doing that with his disciples this morning. So let me summarize really quickly, and then I'll give you a minute to comment. Jesus is greater than Moses to the same degree that God is greater. So the work he came to accomplish is unique, but only the Son of God could do. And receiving Jesus as this is essential to being a true disciple. How did the disciples end? John 20, 28. What does Thomas do? He falls on his face and he says, what? My Lord and my God. That is a true disciple. Worship. Number two. Because the work that Jesus came to accomplish is greater and more certain, and absolute guarantee of all of God's promises that He's made. Number three, He will preserve His own by dying for them and by sustaining their faith firm to the end. And that's the glory of our Savior. He's showing it to His disciples. He's showing it to you this morning. You might be in a trial. His disciples were. You might be about to enter one. Christ wants you to behold his glory. He didn't come to usher in the new creation now. It's coming. But it's guaranteed for all who are in him who receive him because of the glory of his person and the work of his redemption. So praise him. Worship him. Any questions, comments on this beautiful little passage this this Yes, Bob. I I'm just struck by kind of on a... A macroscopic level, going back to John's purpose for writing the book, he says that so that you might believe. And I guess I'm just reminded, even in this small story, you read through John, there's no way that you can draw any other conclusion than that Jesus claimed to be God, and everyone on earth has to deal with this question at some point or another: Is Jesus who he claimed to be? Um, you know, and John leaves no doubt even in the small little stories in between that Jesus was claiming exactly. to be God. Yep. It's reality. essential. Like it's not one of those side doctrines. You deny the Trinity or deny the deity of Christ, Arianism, all that. It's just uh, uh, not essential. you it can't be a Christian. Yeah. It's, it's what it means. It's good. It's either a liar, lunatic, or lord, right? Yeah. Good. What else? Any other questions, comments? So, is that Psalm where you're talking about God raising up the storm and then calming it. Do you think that was like a direct prophecy, like speaking about this passage? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. I think uh obviously it was in God's mind. Sure. Um, yeah. I just thought it was amazing. Sure. Cause... It is it is amazing. Um but if you read Psalm one oh seven there are maybe five or six of these little units and they all conclude in the same way. Okay. it's picturing the exiles. Um, who are in these lands, some there for sin, being judged for it, some there just a natural consequence of, of these things, and they're all looking to the Lord's steadfast love to bring them back to the land. Okay. And of his faithfulness to deliver them in all kinds of circumstances. Yeah, so, yep. Any other questions, comments? Yes. Um, kind of going back to last week and just contrasting the people's response to Jesus, miracles for the people that he knew would have the wrong response. <clears throat> yeah, so why did he do the signs to begin with? Um, yeah, it brings us back to his, his patience to them um, and to remove any excuse you know, from them. So in one sense, it is true, he, he doesn't give them more revelation of himself so he doesn't heighten their guilt and at the same time he does continue to give them sign after sign after sign to demonstrate who he is but it stops come to John 12, it's done. Like, you, you hear it. It's just like a thud. The signs are over. They're, they're guilty. They've rejected them over and over again. No more. He doesn't give any more until the resurrection. Um, so, it's a, it's a good question. Um, but he comes to the disciples in a, in a unique way. He's not withholding the crowd from the crowd. something that they needed. They had everything they needed. It's not the reason people disbelieve. We saw that with Nicodemus. They disbelieve because their hardness of heart. They love the praises of men other than the praises of God, all these things, right? But he gives them all they need, keeps giving it. But he comes to disciples in a unique way to strengthen the faith that's already there, that's already present in them. So, I don't know if that helps. But just thinking about how John has explained it to you. Questions? Comments? We are uh, four minutes over, so let me pray. Let me let you go. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Oh, Father, I have no other request than that you open our eyes to see the glories of your Son, and you've promised to do that. You'd love to do that. We would love him, know him, see him, savor him, worship him, trust him for eternal life. Now, in the ages to come. Submit to him as our Lord and worship him as our God. We love you, pray, praise you, and help us for the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.